All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this bonus episode of Theory Club. Thank you so much for tuning in. Emily, how are you? I'm doing great. My eyes hurt, but I'm doing great. <laughs> a little inside scoop to my life, to listeners. I've been trying contacts, and they are not as easy as people make it seem. I will just say that. I People do it so nonchalantly, just like poking their eye, pinching their eye, and then... <laughs> They, like, oh gosh, I think people should get paid for using contacts. Let's just put it that way. But you know what's interesting? Seriously, people like will look, okay, well, in certain situations, you know how like there's like the idea that if someone shows up to work like with their contacts in and their makeup done, you know, they're like ready for work. But if someone comes in with like glasses on, it's almost like they're not ready to go. Have you ever heard that sort of thing before? Like they're not professionally... Like, glasses are known as, like, the resting sort of thing. And, like, contacts are more, like, preparing yourself for, like, professionalism. Okay. That is interesting. I don't know that I've heard that glasses are unprofessional. I can see this in a context... Yeah, I can definitely see this in a context of women not wearing makeup and that being seen as not professional because of patriarchy. But, like, I... You know, but I, but I, I feel like as a context, the listeners know I'm a contact stan. I do also have many pairs of glasses, so I kind of go back and forth and have phases where I'm wearing glasses a lot or where I'm wearing contacts a lot. During this age of COVID, I wear a lot of contacts because y'all know who wear glasses. The mask contact struggle with the fog. It's not for me. That's not my ministry. So I'm wearing contacts for the time being. But I guess I I can I can see as a as a contacts wearer how glasses I guess are like the lazy version of like you just get up and you put on your glasses. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like people that put contacts in, like we just brush past that. And it's like over the past few days that I've had recently, starting with contacts, I feel like I owe everyone that wears contacts an apology <laughs> for ever assuming <laughs> that their life was easy wearing contacts, because it's not. <laughs> an apology oh that's so funny you know I I I started wearing contacts when I was like I must have been a freshman or a sophomore in high school because I okay listeners we're not gonna get into this but I was a cheerleader anyway we're gonna brush right past it I wish you I wish you all could see Emily's face I Maybe I'll send I'll send Emily a, a picture for the Instagram maybe of me and my in my chariot form. But I <laughs> but yeah, I think it was maybe three three years or so that I was a, a cheerleader and um I I remember starting cheer with glasses but feeling like I was nerdy or like I didn't look like the other girls on the team and that I wanted to be cool and sophisticated and professional and like popular. So I remember coming to my mom one day and coming home and being like, mom, I need to have contacts. And she was like, you don't because you have perfectly fine glasses. And I was like, but I need to look cute and glasses aren't cute. And I look like a nerd. Do you want me to be a nerd forever, mom? And she was like, okay <laughs> too big a deal but she did end up getting me contacts so that's why I ended up wearing contacts so you know I um 
but now I love con- I love both actually. I like contacts. I like glasses. I think they're cute in different scenarios. I just ordered a new pair of glasses, so glasses I normally wear around the house. Contacts I wear when I go out. So I I do see what you're saying about the whole laziness thing. But it's like if you're just lounging, you got nowhere to be. Who's trying to mess with your contacts? You just put your glasses on. You can see. <laughs> no, lazy is me when I don't put either on. Just because <laughs> sometimes I do that. Now I can't see. Uh, it's just. Anyway. <laughs> Great. Well, I mean, I'm glad you're figuring it out. And I, you know, you have the break to to play around with them. Make sure you got the technique down. You know, it's even harder with nails. Ooh. <laughs> I have my nails done right now. When your nails are long and you're trying to like poke your it's a situation, but you know. <laughs> I guess you're you're a violinist, you don't have you you don't have nails, but <laughs> I have nothing. I literally have nothing to play violin. There you go. The, the perfect contact hand. So, listeners, clearly you can see that we, we've been enjoying our, our time off from school, our holiday break. I'm actually back in school. We went back to school pretty early on the 5th, so we didn't get much of a break, which was a bit of a bummer. But we hope that you enjoyed your holiday season um, and eating great food or visiting family or just staying in or whatever you did. We hope that you had a great time and had some rest and relaxation and that you're feeling refreshed in the new year. Um, Emily, uh, are you looking forward to going back? What are you taking this semester? I am looking forward to it, but I am terrified of it. Why? <laughs> you're a professional by now. You're a professional. The amount of classes that I have, I have to pull it up. Oh my God. I'm just, I'm in classes till five o'clock every day. It's just constant from 8 a.m. Sometimes it's 8 a.m. Sometimes it's 9.30, just two five. It is crazy. Um, okay, I'll just go through this quickly. Percussion techniques, uh, atonal theory, theory four, piano three, orchestra, which rehearses for three hours, five days a week. Kill me. Um, two studio <laughs> classes. Um, lesson with my technique professor and then lesson with um, my other violin teacher. Um, Western Music History 1. Uh, a class called Artle. It's something for music ed. I don't really understand it. Um, and oh, we also have a performance class for all the string players. And then I have three students that I teach during the week and then four that I teach on the weekend. And I think that's it. Wow. <laughs> Oh my god. I forgot how busy undergrads are. That's crazy. You know, I thought my coursework was busy, but like under oh god, music undergrads, you just don't even sleep or eat. It's like it's crazy. And the thing is too, like I oh, I could get so into this because I was just working on my schedule today, putting it all together so it's clear and I won't miss anything. And like there's no time to eat lunch. Like, there's just no time. I can have quick snacks between classes. Because of COVID, we can't take down our masks during class and eat. So I can't eat during class. And it's just, like, this semester is going to be impossible. I didn't have orchestra last semester. So my afternoons were open. And, like, my early evenings were usually open. Unless I scheduled something there because I wanted to. Now. (laughs) You know what? If I make it out alive and we do another bonus episode and I'm alive for it. Anything is possible. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Listeners, thoughts and prayers to Emily, please. (laughs) 
send your well wishes. Truly send food because I'm concerned. Um, also, oh, also, will you update the listeners on your arm and your injury? How are you feeling? Oh, right. Um, well, actually, it's what, January 10th and a year ago on January 8th, I had my surgery. So it's been a year and two days. And so far, everything has been fine. Occasionally, if I do sleep with my arms, like, curled into my chest, then, like, I will get some tingling, like, in my fingers, so I just have to be careful about that. Um, But otherwise, the cortisone shot is doing good. I will need surgery again in the future. We're just trying to push it as long, long way down the road as possible. (laughs) But, yeah, otherwise, I'm very, very lucky to have been operated on successfully and still be able to play as well as I can, even though I don't play that well. But <laughs> I mean, trust me, your Instagram begs to differ. Everybody follow that violin girl six on Instagram. She's living it up. Those performance videos, chef's kiss. So, okay, good, good. I'm glad to hear that you're doing well. Uh, you know, you'll be in our thoughts <laughs> this semester. <laughs> I truly forget how busy undergrad is. It's crazy. Yeah, this semester, I believe I'm in five classes plus lessons. So I'm taking voice lessons this semester. I'm in a production of The Magic Flute this semester. Uh, I'll also be taking a class called Everyday Musicology. So it's kind of an introductory-ish musicology class but it's kind of all about like the the general soundscape that you experience so like all the music that you hear during the day when you're like watching a commercial or when you're on the bus or when you're in a coffee shop or you know like all the ways in which music is utilized in the everyday so that's going to be a really interesting class it's actually a joint class with undergrads and with grads so I'm excited to mingle with undergrads again and get their fresh young energy just suck it right up I'm so excited (laughs) um and uh what else I'm taking a second semester of Shanker lucky (sighs) I could I'm like so angry about the fact I'm gonna be so jealous of you I'm not even gonna talk to you anymore after this this is so unfair I don't understand why Shanker and analysis is only one semester don't say that you're saying that now but mm, I mean, I have new Shankarian analysis books that I can read on my own, but. Listeners, check back in and see if I passed, because we're going to see. <laughs> Remember, you can always go to Dr. Hussey. Dr. Hussey, please, when you listen to this, email me and, and ask, are you feeling you need help? Because I'm going to be like, yes. Um, so actually this one, this semester should be a lot more interactive, uh, and a lot where there are a lot more readings this semester. So it's less analysis based and more discussion about Shanker's theories versus, um, like doing a lot of Shanker graphs. So I think that will be kind of an interesting switch up. So we'll see how that goes. So today I'm really excited. We are going to be discussing Music Theory's Therapeutic Imperative and the Tyranny of the Normal by Joseph Strauss. So this has been kind of a a hot button topic since this dropped in Spectrum. And I actually, I'm in a book club with friend of the show, Anna Rose Nelson, who was on the podcast last season. I'm in a book club with her and she was like, we should read this Joseph Strauss piece. And I was like, great. So we read it. And then literally the next day after we talked about it, my, um, my teacher for music theory pedagogy also assigned it and was like, we're going to talk about the tyranny of the, and I was like, I just read that. (laughs) So it feels like 
everybody's talking about it, you know, thinking about it. Um, and I think that it's a super duper interesting piece. I have so much to say. What I what I want to start off with, you know, as if I haven't done enough ranting, but I want to start off with, <laughs> with um, a story that this made me uh, uh, think of, you know, conversations around bodies for me, um, you know, I, I always see um, conversations around like disabled bodies as linked to conversations around um, basically the first thing that this brought up in my mind for me was this moment that I had. Um, I think I've actually told Emily about this, but I don't think I've said this on the podcast. So I had this moment, it was about a year ago, it was in January of 2021, uh, where uh, I was, you know, getting dressed and I ripped a pair of pants. Uh, I, you know, I had some put on some quarantine pounds. And um, I had this really, really, to me, what was a really horrific response and an incredibly intense internalized fat phobic response right so I had this moment of like oh my gosh like I'm I'm terrible I can't believe I gained weight this is horrible and um that was a reaction that really shocked me um because I you know I'm quite a thin person I've always been a pretty thin person like I um I don't experience fat phobia in the slightest um but that was a moment in which I felt really challenged to uh dig into that reaction and why I had had that reaction and understand um, kind of the the origins of where that fat phobia was coming from because it was an internalized reaction about me, but I was most certainly having those thoughts even, you know, subconsciously about other people and other bodies, bigger bodies that I've been around, right? And that I'm in contact with. So I, I kind of started this quest in 2021. I was reading a lot about weight and... Um, the ways in which we t- tie weight to health and weight to beauty. I was reading a lot about BMI. I was reading a lot about fat phobia. And, you know, I just began to, you know, become incredibly disturbed by the way that fat phobia is not recognized as, you know, a, an actual form of oppression by the state, right? Because of the way that it is inflicted upon fat people by the state. Uh, and, you know, all the ways in which we tell fat people that they're, fat because of their own uh, life choices and habits and that it's not possible to be healthy as a fat person. Um, so all the ways that we demonize fat, you know, and and the contradictions that come with that. Because we also obviously all know thin people that are not the healthiest people, but that are just thin because they're thin because of genetics, because that's how genetics works for everybody. But we don't apply the same logic to fat people. <laughs> well, you know, that's so interesting too, is because like... I, geez, not until like part of high school did I even start like working out at all. Like I, I, I did some like sports stuff, but then like that probably wasn't until junior year where I actually started working out and that was because of my stomach and stuff. Um, but for like two years of high school, I did no like workouts, no physical activity except like walking to in my classes and like coming home or whatever. And I was just it didn't change anything. I was still like the same size. And for other people, like they need to be working out like a lot to make the size that I have, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I can, I've kind of like noticed that like more recently and I, even more like when my stomach issues like started and then like I, I've had periods where like I just 
like the past semester just barely eat and then like get much thinner and it's very disturbing that people will perceive that as like a good thing like oh like that person lost weight like oh they look so much better but in reality it's like uh I lost weight because I have been like starving myself throughout the day is that really a good thing and compared to maybe being a little heavier exactly like (laughs) exactly yeah so again by that logic as far as like oh how come it takes some people like so much to work out to look a certain way um versus me I just kind of look this way no matter what I do even if I'm going through periods of eating a lot or not eating a lot I look this way it's genetics right like (laughs) so telling fat people that like oh your body is invalid and you actually shouldn't be in that body and you're in that body because of your lazy choices versus that's just their body (laughs) they were born with and they might live like a perfectly healthy lifestyle uh but still be in that body and it doesn't make their body unhealthy just because they're in a quote-unquote overweight or obese body just again the universality of the ways that we talk about bodies right that they're objectively good weights objectively good foods objectively good workouts right like what what really changed the game for me is reading um, Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. And that is a really, really, really important book for understanding the racial connotations and origins of fat phobia, right? So like what's so vital about that book is understanding that all oppression is linked, right? So like fat phobia as a tool, as a tactic, as um, oppression inflicted by the state is white supremacist fundamentally right it is a white supremacist tool so like understanding that like the ways in which like fat phobia really spun off from like the atlantic slave chain from call like colonization and from you know oh we need a way to like demonize black bodies they naturally have more fat on their bodies so why don't we demonize fat and like that became the thing you know so like understanding that like all oppression is linked and the ways in which like we inflicting one type of oppression is connected to a different type of oppression so like for example like inflicting um upon someone's gender expression right that 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 like oppressing them because of their gender expression maybe because it doesn't fall within the gender binary as it's currently constructed that that would be um both sexist and homophobic right that that would be like that there are ways in which those oppressions are are tied together so like you know this is especially you know this can be this can be rampant in the in the black community like fat phobia within the black community but like fat phobia is anti-black so like just because you're black doesn't mean you're not anti-black like you could still be you know like you can still participate in that harm and it manifests itself through self-hatred but also hatred of people that look like you but for your own survival right so like understanding the ways in which these oppressive systems like work together um and that's what I really like about this article is that it does a really great job of pointing out the ways in which you know the 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 ableist language that we can employ when we talk about music, when we talk about bodies, right, can be very similar to racist rhetoric, to fat phobic rhetoric, to, you know, like, like that those things all, all come under the umbrella of like a standard of normalizing something and having a normal and an abnormal, like that, though, that all that language is like very similar 
so that there's an ideal and that there are people that fall outside of that ideal, right? There's ideal music and then there's music that falls outside of that ideal for the purposes of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of capitalism, all those things. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's that's just what really stands out to me about this article. I think it's so fascinating. I've been talking a lot. Let me let me kick it to you, Emily. What did you think about this article? Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I should what I should start with. Cuz I don't want like certain parts to come out wrong. The reason why I'm like hesitant to say this is because like immediately like the way my notes are written out I kind of was like reading it and like typing things to kind of like help like it makes sense in my mind and then when I got to the very end I was like okay what's like my general perspective of the article and I kind of just um I just turned on the mic and like spoke into like my word document and stuff and so I hope this still makes sense if I just like read off of exactly like what like my first impression was of the article and then like kind of how it makes sense to me um at first, I struggled a bit to understand the point of the article because it sounded like he was referring to music needing a cure simply because it was written with dissonance and passing tones that were analyzed as such and then resolved to allow pleasure to the listener. I was wondering why exactly the author was speaking with like negative terms about how music was written and why we analyze it like that because that's how we hear it. But after going through a little bit more, I said, now I think that the author's point of writing this article is one, to offer a new type of analysis where we put the dissonance at the center of our inquiry, but also changing the way we talk about music theory and what terms they use and what they mean. And kind of like, it made me think of Yule's article, um, the idea of like how Shankarian analysis relates to racism. I can see like the connection kind of in this article too. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. <laughs> that was my first no, thing totally. after the article. Yes, no, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I think um I think Strauss does a, a good job, you know, he specifically mentions Dr. Yule's work and specifically mentions I thought it was really interesting um how he kind of he he had this remark, I'm I am thinking of a wide range of recent postmodern music theory, including especially work that engages feminist and queer theory. And I was like, Oh, are we in a postmodern that's such a weird <laughs> Thing to think about like the present that we've gotten to like a a post that we're after modern because we're like trying to engage in music in a not harmful way that makes us postmodern that's very interesting to me um but i i totally see what you're saying as far as and it being an interesting idea to move dissonances like you said dissonances to the center of theory rather than those being outlier events or events that need to be treated or events that shouldn't exist right um or that need to be resolved right that are fundamentally wrong and need to be resolved i actually had this assignment this semester in um in music theory pedagogy where we had to like review a bunch of different textbooks like music theory textbooks and and talk about them and what they communicate to students about music theory and how accessible they feel are they easy to read are they easy to understand do the musical examples make sense are the musical examples diverse is it only classical music is it does it have popular music examples all that stuff so we're looking at all these different textbooks and i was looking into the um the stephen late's the complete musician textbook and I thought that textbook did a very, a very good job of kind of creating 
classical music as a narrative, right? As as a as as a narrative with multiple events of tension and release, right? So that's the way currently that we go about teaching music theory, right? That there are moments of dissonance, moments of tension, uh, moments of of buildup, and then moments of release and of of pleasure. And I, you know, I think that this article is really challenging that, that are, are those moments, do they need to be standardized <laughs> in the way that we're teaching them, right? Um, or are those moments of tension inherently wrong? What happens when we end a cadence on those moments of tensions? Is that wrong? Is that music disabled? Is that music sick, right? Does it need to be healed? So like, the ways in which we talk about that music, the same language that we're using to talk about music and the way that we talk about able-bodied people versus disabled people, that disabled people are living a lesser sort of life because of their physical disability or mental disability, um, that they, like, like, do you remember the whole, like, Autism Speaks debacle, um, or their whole scandal that they believe that autism like shouldn't exist and like or something like that. Uh oh, let me not get the facts wrong before I just say this. <laughs> not get it out. Autism speaks. There's like a whole thing about if I'm remembering correctly. I remember hearing about this with Sia and her whole thing on um. Remember when Sia had that movie, This Is Music, or whatever, that she produced? Do you know who Sia is? Yeah, yeah, I just don't okay. know the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was, like, last year or the year before, she was, like, producing a movie, and first of all, got into some hot water because it was a movie, I think, about an autistic girl, but didn't hire some, but didn't cast someone with autism. I know the person that they hired, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Wait, really? Well, I don't know them personally, but like I know them oh, on Maddie. I was like, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I remember that because I know like the girl that did it, Maddie, she was like hesitant on doing the movie. Like she was worried and saying she didn't want to do certain I mean, I didn't see the movie. I just saw like generally stuff that she posted of it, but like she was worried about playing that role because she knew right. it felt wrong, but they're like, Oh no, it's right. fine and like had her do it anyway. Right. And Sia was like, I tried to find someone with autism, but I couldn't find any. And it was like, what do you mean you couldn't find any? But like, what? <laughs> Obviously, there are probably, like, there's most certainly amazing actors and actresses out there with autism. And you just didn't look hard. Like, it was like, what? I don't understand. So, okay, I found, I found kind of like the, the, the different views on, um, on, that that come from autism speaks so basically they they they've had this stance on autism that this disease has taken our children away it's time to get them back right so basically they speak of autism like a disease that shouldn't exist versus viewing people with autism as on the spectrum right as neurodivergent and how can our world better uh accommodate everybody people that are on the spectrum or people that are considered neurotypical um because in a world that only caters to to people that are neurotypical 
seeing that as a critique, like critiquing the systems that are set up in place that make being a neurodivergent person difficult versus, oh, neurodivergent people shouldn't exist, right? Like, I, I <laughs> so they've come into some hot water for those views because I, I would agree that they're like, well, uh, right? So this idea that like, oh, disabled, disabled bodies shouldn't exist. There's something wrong with them versus no, why doesn't like our school accommodate people with wheelchairs because they deserve to have accommodation versus, oh, those people shouldn't be in wheelchairs and we need to figure out how to heal them, right? That bodies look a certain, all bodies have to look a certain way and function a certain way or else they're the ones with the problem versus our systems not being set up to support them just because they fall outside of what we would deem, quote unquote, as the norm, which I mean, this article points out a staggering statistic that over 25% of American adults are disabled in some way. That's a huge amount. Like, what? So as far as what we're talking about is normal, like, I have a difficult time thinking that disabled bodies aren't normal, right? In the same in the same way that I have a difficult time thinking that black bodies aren't normal, but the subjugation that, you know, that disabled bodies are, are subject to the degradation because our systems are not set up to, to take care of them properly means that they have to suffer. It's not necessarily their bodies that make them suffer, but it's our systems and the way that they interact with their bodies that make them suffer. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah so it's it's uh, it's a very tricky topic that he that he dives into and i i'm i'm thankful for this article i think the first half is is really interesting and really sound well that's when they were talking about like shankarian analysis um and it's of course i do because i like shankarian analysis but like really i mean because i understand it too i can make connections a little bit better and where they're talking about like especially in shanker where like if you have like a chord that's odd it's like oh okay yeah that's just a like you just pass through that chord and you know it's five to one or one five one or whatever um and then the way like he talks about how like passing tones add richness but are also a threat I feel like that like term too is like really good to kind of explain to how we perceive not simply music but like you know, other things as well. Um, kind of like what you were just saying. Right, right. And um, another really interesting quote that uh, is from the article, it says, in Schoenberg's theorizing, musical works thus follow a narrative of disability overcome. A tonal problem intrudes upon and destabilizes an initial state of balance and rest. It is the task of the piece to solve the problem and restore a state of balance and rest. And it is the task of, of music analysis to trace that process. So what an interesting narrative that we have constructed about these musics is that these moments of dissonance are actually like moments, per, perhaps we could call it like moments where the music gets sick and then the, the piece heals itself, right? Or moments where uh, the music the melody breaks a leg and then it is on a healing process to be restored. So it's disability overcome, right? It's like, it's like overcoming in the, in the face of adversity, right? So like (laughs) they did it, even though they're in a wheelchair, they did it, even though they're queer, even though she's a woman, like, and it's like, 
that doesn't have to be the way that we talk about this at all. But but I understand the ways in which we've we've demonized these dissonant moments so that the moments of release, so that we rationalize the ways in which the moments of release feel to us. But like, it's, it's so interesting to think about it in that way as like the music, like overcoming adversity (laughs) in, in the melody and in the harmony um, versus just being music with musical moments that are all valid and none of them are bad or good like assigning value to more to musical moments more than others right to that 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 there are cadences that are the ways that we talk about like strong and weak cadences right that there are cadences that are more capable than others cadences that are stronger or or masculine versus feminine right that's what i was gonna uh, say yeah i did have um (laughs) one one theory professor tell me before i had no idea that you know like when we would learn cadences it was like a stronger weak cadence well when that professor went to school like you know obviously years and years ago um the way that he learned cadences was oh the strong cadence that's the masculine cadence and then the weak and when he told it to me I was like seriously like even though it's like years ago it's still like that really happened (laughs) like and it's like still it's like still happening like strong and weak is still like yeah. what's going it's on like, there, it's just right? we're slowly making progress yeah it's like having a jock cadence and then a nerd cadence it's like wait what like why are we citing value to those to those things two two books i would recommend listeners on um kind of this idea of assigning value to music um have we wait have we read uh what is William Chang's book? Loving Music Till It Hurts? Have we read that on the podcast? We didn't do it on the podcast, but you sent it to me. <gasps> I can't believe we haven't talked about it. We should talk about it. Because <laughs> that's a great book. We definitely need to talk about that. Listen, I really recommend William Chang's book. Also, you'd be very interested in, I believe it's Susan McClary who wrote Feminine Endings. Um, and that's like feminist musicology. Um, so we could also visit that book. And I bet you would find that really interesting but yeah just the the way that's very strongly coded language and you could it i <laughs> it's it's giving shanker talking about pitch hierarchies in music that's not very unlike the way he talked about racial hierarchies with people like it's very it's coded language we know what's going on so you know i just think this whole this whole article is so interesting and again tied to other forms of oppression right the ways in this normalizing language is universal right and and it it links to other forms of normalization uh, and the normalization of bodies and of gender and of sexuality and of race like all the ways in which we try to come up with some sort of ideal some what we call the default or the neutral those things are all connected so i appreciate that he shouted out phil yule's work and and other people that are that are you know it's all like you know different sides of the same coin right like they're all kind of attacking oh music theory kind of does this and that's strange we should talk about that or oh it kind of subjugates this people group to this that's interesting so they're all kind of attacking it in these different ways and i hope that there are you know emerging young scholars that can continue to add to this discourse that i think is so interesting um Anything that you want to jump in with before I get to, I'm going to be honest, I have some mild critiques 
Uh, so we're going to get to it, but do you have anything else? Oh, okay. I just find it so interesting. This is so different. This is more kind of going into pedagogy, I feel like. I don't really know. But I find it interesting how we use, like, medical terms to talk about such non-medical things all the time. Like, literally in violin, I took a violin pedagogy class last April, April or May-ish. And the way that, I mean, I was doing this naturally, but the way that the lady was, like, explaining in the course is that when you, like, have a new student and like they play for you and it's like you're seeing things like oh their left hand is like or their wrist is bent like oh their bow hand their pinky is locked straight oh and they're also out of tune okay that's like three things like you don't just say all three things that are wrong like wrong you know to help a student but how do you figure out which thing you should like tackle first and that's where she kind of stole from like the medical field basically how you triage like certain um parts for like a student so like if someone comes into like the emergency room and like they I don't know they they cut their toe or something I don't know (laughs) I'm just going on with something random and then there's like another person who's like having a heart attack you're gonna treat the heart attack because that's obviously more time like demanding and so with like a student if you have say those three things the straight like pinky and the bow and like a bent wrist and they're out of tune the first thing you would go to is the wrist one because that's why they're out of tune (laughs) and two because that's going to affect the sound like way more before you fix the bow and so that's like something that we have like in our like violin pedagogy like teacher brain kind of a lot of people think like that but that's like one medical terminology and the other thing was just before we hopped in the zoom meeting I took my contacts out after seven hours that's the longest pediment and as I was doing it because it's so complicated I'm sitting on my bathroom sink and I'm like trying to become the doctor and I was talking like this article I was like looking and I was like trying to you know do whatever and I was like okay like I gotta figure out like how like what is wrong exactly what's the cure to this what's like the problem so yes. I can like, come up with the You're cure like, I have to diagnose. am I not like <laughs> pinching this right like I'm, my eyes my like flinching and like I was thinking about the article then because I was like talking like in medical terms anyway so yeah that's kind of slightly you know different but I just think it's interesting how we can use like medical terminology to talk about so many different things like music theory or violin pedagogy or Emily's contacts Mm -hmm. that she can't take out (laughs) (laughs) okay this is so interesting because it's like okay so why do we dip into that language versus maybe you know we would associate music right with being highly creative right with being an art form why don't we dip more into like creative language from or or poetry or something like that why in music theory particularly would we go to terms that feel absolute that feel sterile that feel neutral that feel um objective right versus maybe things that feel a bit more creative right so that's that I feel like speaks to the state of music theory and music analysis as we've constructed it that it's like this thing that's like absolute and that it you know like like you know it gets compared to math a lot people call it like the maths of music a lot right that they're objective truths that we as theorists have to go in and diagnose and figure out and you know surgically remove or alter or you know things like that 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 it's this very um it's the sterile process that's removed from personal identity or perhaps from creativity right that we see what's there and it's not necessarily our job to, it, it, yeah, it's our job to like analyze and interpret it and to see it as it is um, and make objective statements about it, right? Absolute truth statements about it versus perhaps maybe what we'd see with our friends in musicology that take things, take the whole context 
more into account we focus we zero in on the score and we like operate on the score in this very particular way right so it feels perhaps more similar to like the way that the, like the language that we use in stem versus maybe musicology being more the language that we would use in like a literary field or something like that does that make yeah. sense i don't know yeah no that's kind of what i get from it too yeah mm-hmm. it is interesting but again that probably stems from something like <laughs> you know i mean it's it's and you know the split from musicology is such an interesting weird thing i kind of you know we kind of can feel them like coming back together that like musicology and music theory are more like coming back after like they're like weird split during the 20th century but i just i think it's okay 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 so here's what i want to say as far as as far as a critique that i have of this piece which i again i think is really uh thoughtful and thought-provoking and has sparked a lot of conversation so i think it does hopefully what it was intended to do, which is to spark a lot of discussion about this and about the language that we use in music theory. I really think the first half of the article is really poignant. And then we get to the musical examples. And I feel very conflicted because perhaps I need to continue to engage with the article to, like, perhaps I'm missing the point because I I just need to read it more or I would be interested perhaps to talk to Strauss about this or to, to hear him speak on this and maybe that would provide a little more clarity but I think once we get into the musical examples and we're drawing these parallels from like Mozart to from Mozart to this Virgil Thompson opera I don't know that I really that I really understood the the point of those musical examples like I guess just kind of showing the progression and how oh in this instance this progression isn't like a a linear chord progression that we would associate with being like traditional to Mozart's style or traditional to um the style at the time but I don't really know that I saw the parallel like the connection between these two pieces it did feel a bit discombobulated to me it felt a bit like we were grasping but what I want to say is that I think the first half of the article is so strong and I feel like the second half doesn't necessarily even need to be there to prove his point which is like we should be questioning the language that we're using and the way that we talk about musical moments and the way that we put them in hierarchies like is that actually helpful is that an inclusive way to talk about music because it's not an inclusive way to talk about people so does what music are we excluding right when we talk about music with this ableist language i think that's a really strong and compelling argument i don't think it needs a musical example here's the rub right would this article have been like published in a journal like smt spectrum if it didn't have a strong musical example Probably not, right? Because in music theory, we're all about the score. We're not about like critiques of music. That's that's not to say that in music theory, we don't critique music theory and we don't critique pieces and things like that. 
but we're all about the score. We're all about if you have an argument, you have to be able to back it up with a musical example. You don't get published in Music Theory Online. You don't get published in SMT or in Spectrum without having pages of musical examples to prove your point. But I don't, I don't think that this is a point that should be proven in a traditional way. And I feel like he did this really great job of like critiquing um, the ways in which the language that we use to talk about music, but then almost counteractively, like reflexively did the same thing to prove, to like try and, 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 and imagine what disabled music theory would look like, but it didn't feel, it felt like we were using kind of this similar language or similar tactics, right? Similar methodologies to what he was critiquing. So I almost feel like he almost undid his point with okay. this musical example. No, I see that. And okay. yeah. Now that and you so explain I, it. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> you're good. It's just, it's, it's, so, but I understand that there's not a way to get something like this published in one of these major journals without music musical examples are a requirement like those are not (laughs) optional so like he had to engage with music in some sort of way and show his work in the score just the way in which we ask music theorists like well you have to prove it right you have to show your work you have to show your math so that we can see it if you can't prove it in the score is it really a valid interpretation and that is a problem, I think, right? That you, you you can be able to critique our field and critique our, our language and our methodologies without then 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 the the prompt then is like, okay, we'll come up with your own way and then prove it in the score. And it's like, well what if we're not even ready to do that yet. We're just we're just diagnosing the problem. So like we're not ready to like jump into a whole new way of engaging with music theory or what he calls disabled music theory in this article. I don't really see it in the article but like that's because he's just introducing it he's just starting to play with those ideas he's just introduced them to the public we're all starting to think about those ideas so like we have a long way to go before we have something that could be called i think quote unquote disabledist music theory or that does what he's actually talking about it's just the fact that he was asked to prove it right off the bat it's like calm down (laughs) and that's not his fault that's not his fault but that's the field as it stands that like your theory isn't actually valid until you can prove it until you have a musical example that you can parse through that you can analyze that you can amputate that you can you know chop up to make your point i just I didn't feel like his musical examples were connected and I didn't feel like they actually proved his point or helped his claims. And I don't think that's his fault. I think that's a difficult thing to prove at this time. Does that make sense? That does make sense. It it was interesting because actually I really liked the musical examples. Like when I read it like the first time around through, because I think it helped like me understand a bit better with my experience in music, like where those ideas kind of show up. I feel like maybe it's just the location, like to put them towards the end of the article is a bit strange. Like now that I think of it that way, maybe if it was more at the beginning, but then it's also kind of like, what's it called? Kind of like going back to the Yule thing, like where he couldn't necessarily present solutions. And it's the same thing with this article. You can't like present a solution yet, but it's like getting the idea out there. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. yeah I can see that right so I just feel like I feel like he did a really good job of presenting the the problem right presenting the state of things and saying hey 
what if we thought about this in a different way? I don't, you know, again, perhaps I could continue to engage in this article and maybe I'll like the musical examples of it more over time. But over, you know, I've read it two or three times now and I was like, okay, I'm kind of seeing, but I'm also kind of not. I didn't love them. Um, But I understand that because of the state of the field and because of what we prioritize in music theory versus musicology, like I feel like that first half, musicology would have taken it. They would have published it because they don't care about the score, <laughs> not as much as we do. But if you're going to be published in like SMT, then it has to be, you know, you have to like, you know, I was looking at the SMT applications they're due in February and I was and you had to provide like a certain amount of pages of musical examples you have that's a requirement so like it's not (laughs) you know there wasn't an option for him to just like put the ideas out there without someone immediately being like well then prove it what does disabledist music theory look like if you think you can better do it better do it and it's like (laughs) i'm just sharing ideas can we just share ideas you know does it have does it have to be tied to the score and that's kind of what music theory is at this point musicology kind of is more divorced from the score and more about the context surrounding the music right like who who did it when was it where was it all about like the history the the uh the anthropology right the epistemology of music so like i I understand why those examples are there. I didn't love them. I see what he was trying to do, but I I don't think it all the way connected for me personally. Um, but I, I, I see what he was trying to do. I thought he had a really, really strong conclusion where he says, I've done quite a bit of normalizing theory myself, just as Yule has done with white music theory, and I intend to do more. My more modest goal is to broaden our sense of what music theory is and might be. Human bodies are infinitely various, and so are musical works and musical events, and so are ways of thinking about musical works and musical events. Traditionally, we have stigmatized some of these and in medical mode sought to normalize or cure them. Instead, let us shatter the normalizing frame and embrace a neurodiversity and biodiversity that enriches us all. So I thought that was a pretty strong conclusion, recognizing like, oh, just because I've I'm like, just because I'm engaging with these ideas doesn't mean that now, like, my past transgressions uh, in the ways that I participated in normalizing behavior and normalizing bodies or normalizing musical moments has, like, vanished, right? Like, it doesn't mean, it doesn't, like, undo any sort of normalizing that I've done, and it doesn't, like, undo any future normalizing that I will participate in because inevitably we all participate in this behavior we all use this language we all um especially in the academy right we all participate in like the standardization of music right of the way that it's taught of the way it's perceived of the way we ritualize it through performance of the way that we insist that there are right ways to perform something and wrong ways to perform something right ways to analyze something and wrong ways to analyze something like so we all do this to a certain extent and some of us more than others depending on what privileges we have access to right so i appreciated that he acknowledge that while also saying you know but I think it can be different and we can begin to think about the ways in which it can be different and I think that that 
is a great conclusion for this piece. And I just didn't need the musical examples to make that point because I because I think that his argument is is strong enough and clear enough to me. So I really I appreciate the way that he engages with these ideas. I just thought that it was interesting the way that it was like, ah, just immediately being asked to prove it. It's like, ugh. It's tiring. I'm tired. Music theory does a lot. And I love it, but we're doing a lot. True, true. Yeah. No, it does make sense. Kind of like when you explained it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Because he also talked about, like, a little bit at the end, um, how originally it was published in a musicology journal. And then, like, was like, no, this is music theory, but also, like, has well, the required components, you know, to be in, like, a music theory journal sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, wait! Oh, I'm seeing it now! Oh! Originally published in musical... That's exactly what I said! Okay, yes. <laughs> See, that makes sense, right? Because this type of thing... Like, that first half of the article is totally musicology. But then you have to add the the, the musical examples in order to bring it into the realm of music theory, which I think is kind of bogus. And I get, like, our whole field, the whole reason why we split from musicology is because music theory wanted a moment to, like, focus on the score for the score itself, right? We wanted to be alone with the score. We didn't want to think about all the context and all the history and, like, tie it to all those things. We just wanted to look at the score, so that's why we did it. But now I'm like, um... We should, like, we should come back. I feel like... (laughs) I feel like our two fields should come back together. Because I, you know, I just... I think that this is a really valid and valuable piece of, of, of music theory scholarship. And I would want it to be considered as such, even if you can't prove your work in a score yet. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if everything that I said made sense. I might cut some of it out, but, (laughs) but I think it's really, yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm seeing it now. I originally published in, in musicology journals, of course. But, but my attitude about what constitutes music theory has broadened, and now I think I was wrong. The, this work closely was closely engaged with music, and so it was music theory, it is music theory, and should be music theory. Yes! Yes! <laughs> totally agree. Totally agree. And I don't think you need musical examples uh, to prove that your piece is a music theoretical piece, that your theory is a theory. <laughs> I just think that exactly the point of the article that we can expand what we call music theory and expand the language that we use to talk about these musics and that it's difficult to do that when it's so standardized and when we teach it in a particular way and talk about it repeatedly and pass it to generation to generation in a very stylized particular way with the same language. So it's interesting how you pointed out your professor who used to call it masculine and feminine but is weak and strong all that different that's ableist language like it's not different (laughs) you know so it's like we're still again different sides of the same coin we're still toying with hierarchies and hierarchies are a result of of people with biases and our biases show up in our analyses of the music. That's why I have a problem with like, it's just me and the score and I'm doing music theory. It's like, because I bring my context, my bias to the score. So it really can't be a divorce from context. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Oh, that's so interesting to think about. I know, oh it's God. tough, but I love this piece. That's, this is exactly what this piece is designed to do, is spark discussion. So I love it. I love it, love it, love it. All right, so that is going to do it for this bonus episode of The Theory Club. Thank you so much for listening, for uh, staying subscribed during our off season. We're sorry that we're not back, but actually we're not because we need a break. And, you know, we're taking our time. <laughs> we're enjoying our break. The intro. Enjoy- there we go. <laughs> enjoying our breaks enjoying uh uh getting back into school and we hope that you've had a nice new year so far and uh that you're enjoying going back to school or work or whatever you're doing and thank you again for listening make sure that you follow us on the instagram the theory yeah the theory club underscore podcast right not me not knowing it after <laughs> you're making like, me question it now <laughs> The th- yes, the theory club yeah, underscore the theory podcast. Club <laughs> underscore podcast. Make sure you're following us on Instagram. Make sure you stay subscribed because there may be another bonus episode. So keep your, if your I'm eyes still alive. peeled. Hey, if Emily's still alive, stay tuned. If you know, if I pass Shanker, we're gonna see. Um, so stay subscribed. Don't go anywhere. Other than that, we will see you when we're back for our fourth season in April. So have a great Friday. Have a great rest of your weekend, and we will see you when you see you. Bye. Bye. Thank you, thank you for letting me rant about that, Emily. And listeners, I'm sorry I had to subject you to that, but I'm th- I feel better. I don't have therapy till next week, so thank you. <laughs> you can always see you like midnight, like calling up your therapist and being like, "But this happened," and then he says, "This is the composer." <laughs>